You're listening to the Belmar Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Belmar or to see our upcoming events, visit belmarchurch.com. It's a little odd for me to be here with Pastor Daryl sitting there. Normally, he's not here when I'm speaking. But on the plus side, there's a whole bunch of people who've never heard Daryl speak, so I won't be compared to him today. I want to open with uh, Psalm 139, the first 12 verses. For you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You sit, you know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. A word of prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you Open our hearts to receive your word. Open our minds to understand it. And Lord, give us the wisdom to apply it to our lives. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're here today. To worship God. And they did a great job. In fact... They sang my sermon, or we all sang my sermon. However, since I did go to the effort of putting it together, I'll just go ahead and give it. Um, The thing I like about worshiping God is that it reminds me how close we are to him. David wrote that in his psalm today. He wrote about how close we are, how close he was to God. Sometimes I think we forget that we walk in the presence of a holy God. Um, It's not something we come to church on Sunday morning to experience. It's part of our everyday life. That is, in fact, what I want to talk about today. The first six verses of Psalm 139, David declares the, the omniscience of God. Easy for me to say. The omniscience of God, which means that God knows everything. God knows what we do, where, how we do it. He knows uh, everything about us. He knows when we sit down and when we stand up. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what we're going to say before we even say it. Let that sink in for a minute. When I remember that God knows what I'm going to say before I say it, 
it makes me not say some of the things I intended to say. David's amazed by this. He says, this is too wonderful for me. This is, this is knowledge that is just too wonderful. It's too lofty for me to attain. But he goes on in chapter 7 through 12, which is what I really want to focus on today. And he talks about not God's omniscience, but his omnipresence. Omnipresence. The fact that God is with us all the time. He's always here. He's always with us. To me, that's even more amazing than the fact that God knows everything. The fact that God is always present in our lives. He knows where we are. He knows what we're doing. He knows what we're doing and where we're going. And he's there with us. Now, I admit that I have trouble with that, with understanding that. Omniscience, we can sort of get a vague idea of omniscience. I remember one time when I was little, some neighborhood friends of mine went someplace we weren't supposed to go. We did something we weren't supposed to do, and it didn't turn out very well. And on the way home, we were arguing whether or not we should tell our parents. And a friend of mine, his name was Billy, Billy says, nobody will ever know. We just don't tell them. They'll never know. And I said, that just doesn't sound right to me. My brother agreed with me, but we just had this argument all the way home. When we got to our backyard, Billy went home and I went up the steps to, to our house and walked into the kitchen. And there was my mother standing there with a more in sorrow than in judgment look on her face. You all know that face. And she said, what did you do? <sighs> I don't know how she knew. <laughs> I don't know. She's a mom. We all know people that are smarter than we are. At least I do. The list is pretty big in my case. I'm always amazed when I'm with somebody that's a, that's a genuine expert on a subject that I know little or nothing about. I love to listen to them explain it and talk to about it. But all of these things give us a vague inkling of, of what it is for God to know everything. We, have, we can extrapolate. It's the same with omnipotence, all-powerful God. We all know somebody stronger than we are. There's a whole bunch of football players around here that are definitely stronger than I am. And there's political and financial strength. We all know people who have that and we don't. So we could sort of extrapolate that into an all-powerful God. But I have to admit, admit to you that I cannot get my head around the fact that God is always present in each of our lives, anywhere we go, all the time. That is just too amazing for me, to quote David. That's too wonderful for me. Now, I know it's true, but I don't understand it. I believe that because it's in God's word. So I believe it by faith. I accept that God is all powerful by faith. And he is. But the fact that I don't understand it doesn't make it not true. It doesn't mean I don't have to accept it. And it certainly does not mean that I don't have to consider what that means in my life, how I should approach such wonderful 
knowledge. Now David begins this section that we're talking about, 7 through 12, with two questions. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? That's amazing. What an amazing question. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The fact is, nowhere. We can go nowhere without, without God being there. I want to just mention something. This is, those of you who know me know that I occasionally go down a rabbit hole. I'm about to do that. When we talk about God being everywhere, when we talk about that to our friends especially, especially if we're talking to somebody who's not a Christian, we have to be really careful about that. When we say that God is everywhere, we do not mean that God is in everything. We have to be careful about that because in the culture we now live in, that's a popular thought. When people will acknowledge there's a God at all, they want to think of a God that's sort of equally spread out in all of creation, a bit here, a bit there, spread out, kind of like the force in Star Wars, just out there somewhere. That's not what we mean when we say God is everywhere. God is everywhere, but God is not in everything. God is wholly present in our life. He's not broken up into bits and pieces and spread out through all of creation. It's really important that we keep that in mind. We have this culture around us these days where we believe that. Worse than that, in our culture, it's not uncommon to hear that if you want to find God, just look deep within yourself. That's not only heresy, it's blasphemy. But that is so common in our culture today that we find God by looking deep within ourselves. That's a Hindu philosophy. You may have heard the word namaste. It's a greeting that some people give. A lot of people that do yoga have, have heard that word. It means the divine within me greets the divine within you. How utterly unscriptural. I am not divine. And I don't find God by looking deep inside me. In fact, the Bible is clear that I cannot find God by looking deep inside me. It is only God who reaches out to me. It is not me who suddenly grasps the hold of God. Well, enough of the rabbit hole. Let's get back to what we started to talk about. There's a theologian named uh, Norman Geisler that talks about this whole concept. He says, omnipresence means that all of God is everywhere at once. As an individual, indivisible being, God does not have one part here and another part there, for he has no parts. God is present but not part of creation. God is everywhere, but he is not in everything. 
The idea that God is wholly present everywhere at once is simply beyond my understanding. <clears throat> but it's true. And I rejoice in it. And I thank God that it's true. So David is acknowledging in these two questions, he's acknowledging this idea that he can't get away from God. That God is, he can't get away from his spirit, that God is present in his life, he can't flee from it. These are rhetorical questions. David isn't really trying to find a way out. He's not really asking, is there some place I can run away to that God won't be? That's not what David is doing here. He is, he is actually rejoicing in this fact that God is present no matter where he is. However, all too often, people try to run away from God. They tried to hide from him. We even have examples in scripture. Two very famous examples about God, uh, about people trying to hide from God. The first one is our, our first parents, Adam and Eve. When we look at Genesis 3, 7 through 10, we read this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. Really? But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Their sin and their disobedience made them ashamed. And it made them fearful of a God that up until then, they had had a close relationship with him and they tried to hide from God. That didn't work out too well for them. A second example, also a famous example, is the prophet Jonah. Here's Jonah's experience. God told him to go to one place and Jonah decided he was going to go to another place. Jonah 1, 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish, which, by the way, was as far west as they thought they could possibly go. Nineveh was to the east. Tarshish was as far west as Jonah thought he could get. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. In the words of a pastor I kind of admire, Alex, Alice, Alistair Begg, he said, that was spectacularly unsuccessful. I have to agree with him. While David's, are, David's questions are rhetorical, meaning that he's stating a fact, not really answering a question, they're also very realistic. As Christians, if we are honest, if we are really honest with ourselves, we have to admit that there are times when we try to escape from the presence of God. There are times when we are tempted to have a go at hiding from God. There's a song that we sing once in a while, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. How often do we fall into that, wandering from God? 
It's our nature to hide from God. Just like it was Adam and Eve's nature after the fall to hide from God. But it's impossible to hide from God. God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23, 24 says this, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot find him? Do I not fill the heaven and the earth? God is everywhere. He knows everything and he is always present. Certainly we cannot hide from God, but why would we want to? Why would we want to hide from God? We know we all do, but why? Why? Well, there's a, there's a verse in Hebrews 4.13 that we can find intimidating if we take it out of context. Hebrews 4.13 says this, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Wow. Now, if you take that out of context, if you don't put that in the context of the gospel message, that is not reassuring. That is intimidating. That is terrifying. It says that God knows everything you do, think, and say, and he will hold you account to it for it. Oh, my goodness. If that's taken out of context, no wonder we want to hide from God. No wonder we want to hide our actions. That's why it's just possible. It's just possible that occasionally we try to slip down a little escape hatch of our own. That we occasionally try to open the trap door and slip under the floorboards and hide from God. Because we feel like Adam and Eve, we're ashamed of our sin and we don't want to face God. Now as Christians, that should not be our attitude but it too often is. Perhaps the demands of the gospel are too difficult for us sometimes. Perhaps the requirements of Christian ethics are too hard for us to follow. Maybe we have slipped. Maybe when we read the Beatitudes and we read the Sermon on the Mount, we say, wow, I, have, oh, I haven't done any of that. And we think now is the time to use my escape card. <clears throat> but it doesn't work. God knows. And God is there. He's always there. Wherever you go, he's there. There's no covering, for, covering your sin with fig leaves. There's no hiding in the trees from God. He is there, and he knows where you are, and he knows what you're doing. We cannot escape from him. And the reason, my friends, is that God loves you too much to let you get away with that. He just loves you too much. David goes on to say in verse eight, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Now, obviously, if we go to heaven, God's gonna be there. But when he says go to the depths, that word actually in most translations is sheol which means the grave or the place of the dead. David is saying, even in death, you are there with me. David said that. Not Paul, David. That could only have been revealed to David by 
divine revelation by the Holy Spirit himself. This was written 900 years before Jesus came and paid the price for our sin, overcame death, and triumphed on the cross over Sheol. And yet, here's David saying, even in death, you're there with me. I know you will be there. How wonderful is that? How absolutely amazing is that? As Christians, we should be living in the full experience of that. That should bring us great joy to know that we, because of, of Christ, have, have this wonderful experience with God and that he, he knows our sin and he's willing to forgive them through Christ. How wonderful, how amazing. And yet we don't want to grab a hold of that too often. We have a record of the birth, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. We should live in joy over this. By the way, when I was putting this together, it, it kept occurring to me that sometimes we forget that the resurrection was not the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He hung around for another 40 days. That would have been 10 days ago, by the way. He hung around for another 40 days, making sure his followers understood who he was, why he came, and showing him in scriptures that he was indeed the promised Messiah. And making sure that they knew that when he left, he would keep his promise to send the Holy Spirit which, by the way, we celebrate today, Pentecost. We have all of that. David didn't. If he could be this joyful over the presence of God, certainly we should be. Verses 9 and 10. We have to remember that the Psalms, most especially Psalm 139, were not written as a theological treatise. Psalms is not a book of theology. It's a book of poetry. These are worship songs written to be sung in worship at the temple. When you read the Psalms, you discover that there are actually musical notes included. Sing this to that tune, sing this to that tune. This is the style of this. We find that. These are worship songs. They're theologically correct but they're poetry. And I don't think in Psalm 139 there's anything quite as more beautifully poetic as verses 9 and 10. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. What a beautiful image. What a beautiful image David writes here. Jonah tried running to the far side of the sea in a sailing ship, and he ended up in the belly of a fish. But David is saying, even if as the sun rises, I could grab a hold of a sunbeam and somehow travel at the speed of the light as far west as I could possibly go, I can't outrun God. He's still there. And most incredibly, his hand is still upon me. 
His hand is still upon me and he's still guiding me. How wonderful. Finally, in verses 11 and 12, David writes this. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light becomes night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for the darkness is as light to you. You know, darkness can hide us from others. In fact, just about all of the strategies that people use to hide from God can hide us from each other, but none of them can hide us from God. God sees through it all. David says, darkness is just as though it were bright daylight to you. Now, you should remember this. We're all grown-ups, so none of us are afraid of the dark anymore, I don't think. When you're children, you always want to have a nightlight on. But adults don't have that. That does not mean, however, that we don't go through very dark places in our life. We don't go to, through places where we can't see the light of the gospel in our life. It's, it's dimmed. It's gone. A dark place. And David says, even there, even in that, even though I cannot see you, you see me and you're there. You're present in my life. That's the message that David gives in these seven or in these six verses. Nothing can hide us from God. Nothing at all. There's nowhere we can go, nothing we can do. Not distance or death or darkness can hide us from him. Maybe that reminds you, as it does me, Romans 8, 38 and 39. It ought to. We sang it just a little while ago. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a whole sermon right there, but I'll, I'll resist the temptation. No wonder David is comforted by the knowledge that God is always present in his life. Let me ask you, do you live your lives as though God was always present? I don't know any preacher that preaches a message to the congregation that hasn't already been preached to him by the Holy Spirit. When I was putting this together. Before I wrote that question I just asked, I asked it of myself. Do I live my life in the full awareness that I live it in the presence of a holy God? Or do I sometimes decide to say, okay, Lord, you stay here for a while. I'm going over here and do something. How do I live my life? Do I live it as if God were present all the time? Sadly, the answer is no. I don't live it that way. And I suspect I'm not the only one in the room, but if I am, I confess to you. And I confess that I really, really pray that I'll stop that. That I'll stop that going off on my own. And I will begin to live my life constantly as if God were with me. Imagine how different the church would be if everyone in the church lived their life in the full awareness that God was present every moment of every day. 
Imagine how different the world would be. But mostly, because the church and the world are made up of people, I want to ask you, imagine how different your life will be when you walk each day fully aware that you're walking in the presence of a holy God and that he knows you, he loves you, he knows everything about you and loves you anyway. He knows your sin. There's no fig leaf business with God. He knows your sin. And he provides a way out. He is present. So when you sin, don't try to hide it from God. Just take it to him, repent, and seek his mercy and his guidance. I'm always... I'm always relying in my life, my personal life, on something that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10. There is no temptation given to you that's greater than a temptation given to anybody else. And when you are tempted, this is the part that I really depend on. And when you are tempted, he will provide a way out. And he does that because he is always with you. He's always with you. Now, I want to mention to you that this is true whether you are a Christian or not. Not being a Christian does not exempt you from the fact that God knows everything you do, that he is always there. He is always present in the total majesty of God everywhere, every minute, every day, in every life. He's there. Now, for a Christian, that's good news. If you're not a Christian, then you're going to be hiding from God. You don't have any other choice. How can you not hide from God knowing that he knows everything you're going to do and hold you accountable for it? For a Christian, we know we're not going to be held accountable. Jesus took care of that for us. But if you're not a Christian, if you've just been a churchgoer, thinking this is a pretty good place to hide from God. He'd never think of looking before me here. If you're just a churchgoer and have never really, have never really known Christ, what's holding you back? Today's the day. There's only one acceptable day to accept Christ, and that is today. So if you don't know Christ, change that. And we can, you can do that today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for you, for the wonderful knowledge that you are always present in our lives. Lord, help us to live our lives as if, as if you're there. Help us to know that you are present. Help us, Lord to live our lives in a way that brings glory to you. And Father, for those times when we forget who you are, for those times when we wander away, bring us back. Help us, help us, Lord. And for any here, Lord, that don't know you, that find this message strange or odd, I ask that you open up their hearts and reveal the truth to them 
and draw them to your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.